All right, let's move into our study this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and go to the 14th chapter of Acts, Acts 14, and then also into our confession in chapter 26, paragraph 5. So Acts 14, and then also paragraph 5 of chapter 26 of the confession. And while you're turning there, I'll just give us some brief reminders of where we've already been uh, in the confession study in this chapter. Uh, that we've learned that the first four paragraphs of chapter 26 concern primarily the universal church. And there is the confession, of course, that God's people uh, who are saved and ruled uh, by our Savior, uh, they are gathered from all over the world. Uh, and in the remaining 10 paragraphs of our confession of this chapter, the confession deals primarily with the aspects of the local church. Now, again, we did learn that the visible, invisible church is seen in the local church, but the local church now will we'll be dealing with that over the remainder of these 10 paragraphs. Uh, what we're going to examine here within these first, these next couple of paragraphs, verse, uh, paragraphs 5 through 7, uh, really is going to deal with the characteristics of the local church. Uh, what makes up the church, uh, even as we'll deal this morning, what is the ultimate purpose of the church. Uh, in paragraphs 8 through 13, we'll look at the government of the church. How is the local church supposed to be governed as far as officers uh, and the leadership in a church? And then in paragraphs 14 and 15 is where we'll deal with uh, the simple subject of interchurch relations. How do the brethren get along and how, what should that look like? Now, paragraph five is a, a summary statement in many ways. Uh, it is going to uh, give us a lot of these upcoming themes uh, in a very concise manner. Uh, so if you'll look there with me, let's go ahead and read paragraph five. It says, in the execution of this power, Wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which he requires of them in the world. Now, paragraph 5 is taken directly from the Savoy Declaration that we've been kind of talking about over the last couple of weeks, and it's taken from the section that's entitled The Savoy Platform of Church Polity, or how the church is to be structured, how the church is to be governed. And there are some alterations that the confession writers uh, for the Baptist Confession took. Uh, the first half of the paragraph, of paragraph 5, describes how Jesus himself builds his church. Uh, we ultimately know that is, is Jesus builds the church, and in order to build his church, he calls out whom he will uh, to make up the church, the individuals. Uh, each individual is called individually, and I know that sounds profound, but each individual is called individually. Uh, and people are not just called unto the gospel or called unto Christ just because they're a part of a family. They're called individually. And uh, so that's how he builds uh, his church. And then the second half of this paragraph describes what the purpose of the church. And really, we have two aspects of the purpose. We have the edification of the saints and, of course, of course the uh, proper worship of God. Now, oftentimes we ask the question, isn't one of the main purposes of the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Certainly it is. 
Uh, but also we need to remember that the proclamation of the gospel is not just reserved for the church house or the church building. That is to primarily be outside of the walls, although we as a church take uh, particular care to be sure that the gospel is preached uh, each and every time that we gather together. So that is very important. But a lot of times we miss, we miss the point, the main point of the church gathering. Now, sometimes this stirs a little bit of controversy, and that's not my intent this morning. But the church primarily was established for the saints. Uh, that's biblical. Now, we, and one of the things I love about the many, many things about this congregation, we want and welcome unbelievers who need to hear the gospel to each and every church service. We want unbelievers here. But don't lose sight of the fact that when Jesus was building his church, the key is in that phrase, building his church. To be part of his church, you have to be one of his. You have to be a believer. You can't be part of a church or part of the church unless you're in Christ Jesus. So the gatherings in the Bible that you see primarily when the church is gathered, they were not gathered primarily for the preaching of the gospel. They were gathered for the proper worship and the mutual edification of one another. The gospel we see being proclaimed primarily outside of the church walls by individuals. Uh, we are supposed to preach the gospel, and we're supposed to preach the gospel individually. And so these things are very vitally important. So we see in this paragraph how the gracious rule of Christ is exercised in the local assembly of his people. One of the greatest teachings of what the church is supposed to be to the world should be how the church functions and how the church operates. If they want to see who God really is, they should look to the church. You know, if you study your history throughout generations, you will find that society has benefited greatly from the church over the centuries. The church has had a major impact in providing the needs of people outside of those local bodies. They receive the benefits of a of a body that they are not a part of. So the church does have uh, the importance of going outside the four walls. So for example, when we gather today, our primary purpose to gather here on the Lord's day is for the mutual edification of one another and for the proper worship. And so we wanna make sure that the worship is proper and we wanna make sure that we're also mutually edifying one another. Uh, that's not just the edification that comes from the pulpit. That's the edification that comes from each other. And uh, that's something beautiful inside the church uh, that we should see happening. So as we look at this this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn over to Acts 14. Now, there's a lot to this chapter, and there's a lot happening. Um, there, there is the, uh, the beginning of this chapter where uh, the disciples and some of Jesus' followers are going into uh, the synagogue. And there is a great multitude of Jews within that synagogue that believe. Uh, but notice what happens in verse number 2 of Acts 14. It talks about that the, the great multitude of both of the Jews and also the Greeks believe there in, in verse 1. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. Now, that's not unlike society today. 
You have a great division between the church and the world. There's this great division, even in the disciples' days, between the Jews and the apostles. The doctrine of the Jews and the doctrine of the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycania, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. Okay, so they were, they were forced out of where they were gathered together. And nevertheless, they went out and they preached the gospel wherever they found themselves. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, the people saw Paul, and this is what leads to the next verse. They saw what Paul was doing, and there wasn't an immediate response to the true God. They falsely assumed that the work that was going on was being done by their false gods, the gods of the universe, if you will. And that's why it mentions in verse 12, and they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, uh, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes, that's a sign of grief, and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, now this is where we start seeing, what we're seeing what's being developed here and what is being established yet again. Nevertheless, he, God, left not himself without witness. In that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, Scarce restrained they the people. That means it had little effect. That they had not done sacrifice unto them. They're, they're not really moved by what's being preached to them. The people are hearing it, but they're not being moved. It has scarce impact on them. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. These disciples had gone out and they had preached the gospel but their center of their ministry was their church they came back to the church and they were confirmed there and you begin to see this mutual edification to exhorting them to continue in the faith 
These preachers of the gospel had been met with great suffering and great resistance and rejection, but when they came back together with their church, they were edified. Honest to goodness, our church should be the most edifying place that you ever attend all week long. Because no matter what you've endured for the week, we ought to come together to where we are encouraged and edified to continue in the faith. No matter how bad last week might have been, there's the edification, the mutual edification around the Word of God to continue in the faith. Because we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders, now we see a little bit about church structure and church government, which is not so much today, but we will get to that. Elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles, and there they abode long with the disciples. I give us that narrative this morning not to give us a full exposition of Acts 14, but I want us to see the principles of how the local church was functioning even in the first century. You see the pattern, and nothing has changed since those days. Now, we understand that the need for the apostles and the apostleship has ended. There's not new apostles showing up. There's not people who see Jesus, have seen Jesus face to face. They've witnessed the resurrection. But we begin to see the structure and the purposes of the local church. We see the gospel being preached. We see the edification of one another. Uh, we see that there is a sense of worship that is taking place when they gather together and they rehearsed all that God had done with them. The word rehearsed is not a fancy word. But do you know when we gather together with our eyes on God and our eyes on Christ and we rehearse or we speak or we testify about what God has done, we are in fact worshiping. We're worshiping God. We're worshiping, worshiping in spirit and in truth. So when we look at this paragraph and we look at this text, we see that it was the gospel that was building the church. It was the gospel being preached that was being met with resistance and with some people were being added. So the first part of the confession is, is teaching us that in the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus, Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit those that are given unto him by his Father. Uh, this is that beautiful picture of divine election. This calling out is the call that Jesus, through the ministry of the Word and the Spirit, calls unto himself all that the Father has given to him, all the elect of God. You are in the faith because the call of God came through the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father gave you unto the Son. And that's the beauty of what's happening here. It is Jesus who chooses who will be saved. Chapter 10 of the confession deals in depth with this is his divine choice. We also see back in Acts 13 verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. 
Only those that God has appointed to salvation are going to believe the gospel. Now that is not limiting God. That is giving God all the glory for His church. All who were ordained to believe. That's what the Scripture says. Ordained to eternal life believe. Those who beforehand were given by the Father to the Son will believe. That's comforting. But we find that it is those who are called who make up what is known as not just the universal church, but is to make up the local church. I mentioned this last week. Church membership should be restricted, must be restricted, has to be restricted only to believers. You cannot admit into the membership of any church an unregenerate soul. Now, can you welcome them to attend and welcome them to be part of the services and to hear the gospel? Absolutely. But the membership that we're going to talk about today a little bit and into next week is restricted to those who have believed. Now, I know that's what leads to the, uh, the, the, the harsh words towards the church. Well, what do you think you are? Some kind of an exclusive club. It has, nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with exclusiveness. It has to do with the obedience to what God has said. This is made up of believers. That's why the very first question when someone presents for membership is about their salvation and whether or not they are actually in the faith. Not what are you looking for in a church. Not what do you want your church to be. First question I often get about it, and it, it hasn't happened recently, I praise the Lord for that. The first question I get is often, what do you have for my children? It becomes the very top of all their choices of church. What do you have for my children? Not, what is your church's position on regenerate or unregenerate members? If I was having to seek out a church, that would be the first question I would ask. I would ask, do you accept unregenerate members, right? Because that, that tells me everything I'm going to need to know about what that church is going to do going forward. So it's very important that we understand that it is Jesus who, through the gift of the Father, calls those unto himself who will be part of these churches. He does this through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. When Paul wrote about this to the church at Rome, in Romans 10, 17, this is what he's making reference to. He's making reference to the preaching of the gospel is the means in which Christ calls his people unto himself. Romans 10, 17. We won't read the entirety of this great chapter 10, but it says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. The question isn't, have they heard? The question is, have they believed? His word has gone out into the world. That's why the power of the preaching of the gospel is not the eloquence of the man. It's not the educational background of the preacher. It must be attended with the power of the Spirit. It must be an effectual word, which is what we've learned. It's the power, the working power of the Spirit that converts the soul. And that's why we see in Acts 16, so we were reading Acts 14, we turn over uh, just a couple chapters, and we see this principle again 
It continues to see the preaching is the gospel is the means in which he assembles his church. And then Acts 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Notice the order. Why did she attend and listen to the words of Paul? Because God opened her heart. This is another one of those powerful passages when I was really becoming familiar about that the doctrines of grace are all over Scripture. That verse jumped off at me like a page. It, I mean, like a, like a light on the page. It was just so powerful. It was like, here's Lydia, and it's the only reason she attended to the words was because her heart was opened by God. That's the Word of God being attended with power. So the power is entrusted with the Lord, and we read this back in paragraph 4 when we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. We studied that last week. It is by him, through him, and for him that the church is established. And as we learned last week, not Jesus Christ and the Pope. It is his church. The local church, as a result of the execution of this calling by the Lord, attended by the gospel and the power of the Spirit, the power Jesus executes is this effectual power that saves his people. It doesn't make the ability to save them possible. It actually does the saving. The saving work is done by the Spirit. The saving work is done by the Spirit of God. Our experiences of salvation begin when Jesus calls us out of the world unto himself through the ministry of the Word, by the power of his Spirit, to those that were given unto him by his Father. When we studied chapter 10 of effectual calling, that entire chapter is dealing with this aspect of paragraph 5 in the building of the church. The churches are to be made up of regenerate, called out believers. And that's the way that the scriptures lay those things out. So we see here that in the first part of the paragraph and also in the first parts of these chapters of chapter 26 of the confession, we see that the church is only to be comprised or made up of genuinely converted disciples of Christ. So if we are genuine disciples, if we truly are in the faith, notice the second, the second phrase of the paragraph 5, that they may walk before him in all ways of obedience, which he prescribe, prescribeth to them in his word. Genuine disciples commit to walking before the Lord in obedience. They commit to walking before the Lord in obedience. Why? Because the Bible says he prescribes it that way. We don't follow God in obedience because we are put into, put into fear to do it. Or we're manipulated emotionally to do it. That you will fear God or this. Or you will follow God or this. The natural response of a person who's been called out and converted by the Spirit of God through the calling of Jesus Christ as a gift from the Father is a response of, I want to be in obedience. 
I want to follow Christ. John 15, 14, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Obedience to Christ's commands is a distinctive mark of true disciples. So if you tell me you're a disciple of Christ and you have no desire to obey his word and his commandments, I question the authenticity of your conversion. And I think that's a right question. Because we will want to obey. We will want to follow. Jesus himself also says in Luke 6.46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If I'm your Lord and you call me as such, then why don't you follow me? Why don't you follow my word? So we understand that it's Jesus himself who chooses who will be saved, and he calls them by the effectual power of the working of the Spirit. Point number two this morning, it is the command or the will of God that believers become members of a local church. The confession says this is a command. Look, we'll talk about this again, but it says those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification, the due performance of that public worship, which he requires of them in the world. There has never been, and I, maybe I am, I am being too uh, now-centered, but there has seemingly never been such a time for generations where church membership is being so questioned. Do I really have to be a member of a church as if that's a bad thing? Why, if we're believers, would we not want the beauty and the gift of the mutual edification of the saints to continue in the faith. Why would we not want that? And there is this real societal change, this shift, where we have we, we know we're called individually to salvation. All of us agree into that. But our call individually to salvation does not call us to be individualistic, to where we are supposed to live out our faith by ourselves. The beauty of the church is carrying out our faith together. That's one of the beauties of it. Is that when you come together, when we arrive on the Lord's Day or Wednesday or whenever our church gathers, every opportunity to gather together with the church is not just so you can say you've been to church. It's for the mutual edification and the worship of our great God. You're not attending church to impress me or when we, get, when we get to that place where we have the plurality of elders, you're not here to impress the elders. You are here out of the desire to worship God. That's why you're not going to hear me guilt you into attendance. But people struggle because their greatest help on this earth for what you're facing is to be under the sound preaching of the word, under the mutual edification in a body of believers. And I know what COVID did to us, and I, this is not meant to be offensive, but watching at home, if you can gather together, is a cheap substitute. It is. It's not the same. Sometimes we have to do that. I'm glad we're able to do that when we need to. But there are some churches that have never come back from that. People don't want to come back to church because they learned how to do it at home and they say church is the same. If I'm at home, it's not the same. The preaching's not even the same. 
It's not. It's not the same to actually be there and everybody hearing the same thing together, mutually being confirmed in the faith. But it is a command. Some people today do question the validity of a church membership. Why does it matter? Uh, church membership is biblical. And I'm, we're not going to go over all these verses today, but I'll give you the references if you want to study some of these on your own. But number one, the Bible, the Scriptures assume that believers are involved in close fellowship with, an, with one another. We see that in Romans 10, verses 12 through 16. Um, all throughout the book of Ephesians, especially beginning at the end of Ephesians 4, all the way through the end of Ephesians 5, there is this close fellowship that is taking place. Now, I understand a fellowship can be defined in many different ways. And it's good for believers to get together outside of a corporate gathering. But it's not a replacement. Meeting at Starbucks is not the same as gathering in the church. It's not the same. Now, can you be edified by talking to another brother and sister in Christ over coffee? Absolutely, you can. Some of my best conversations have been having a cup of coffee with somebody across from a table, but it's not a substitute for corporate worship. And I would never say my a weekly Starbucks date at, on Tuesday morning is my replacement. It's fellowship with more than just individuals, but with the gathering of the church. So the Scripture declares that believers are involved in close, uh, close fellowship. Number two, the Scriptures also declare that believers are to fall under the shepherding and discipline of a local church. Now this is why I think the number one reason why church membership is falling off is because of church discipline. And here's where I'm going to put the blame. The blame is, is that the church has failed to exercise church discipline, which has led to the problems because we're afraid of offending people. Now, remember that example we gave a couple weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 5 about when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and there was the scandalous sin going on and nobody was dealing with it. Folks, as hard as it is, church discipline is also a gift of God because there's the, there is the order and the command to maintain the purity of that local body. Now, the intent of discipline is not, is not excommunication. It's reconciliation. So if a person is on church discipline, this idea that we're to get high and holy and mighty and we're to puff out our chest and say, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to get them out of here. No, biblically, it's to restore them. Now, that might be difficult and it may not happen overnight. And here's the interesting thing. The Lord does not put a time period on when this reconciliation has to take place, but that that's the goal. So if someone who's living in scandalous sin, for example, and let's go back to that example in 1 Corinthians 5, and they are put out of the church because they would not respond to any, any of the attempts, that is taking church discipline and that's doing exactly what God has said we're to do. We're to deal with it. But we're still to deal with it with an understanding that there may come a day. There may come a day when a restoration may indeed come. There may be repentance. And a restoration is a beautiful thing. Churches are now saying, look, you can just come as you are. And I know that's an old phrase. Come as you are. Stay as you are. We're not going to impinge on you in any way. We're not going to make you feel uncomfortable. We're just going to tickle your ears. Say what you want to say. We want you to be... Folks, then, then get a golf membership. Seriously, I love golf, 
But this is not a golf membership. This is not a supper club membership. This is not intended for us to come together and say, look, let's just kind of do whatever comes natural. Let's, let's, let's put our thumb in the wind and see which way the wind's blowing, and that's what we'll do this week. No. This, this assumption of membership, not only the church discipline, but the concept of shepherding. Now let me say another controversial thing. The church and its leaders, pastors and elders, shepherd. There's a lot of organizations that are trying to say we're shepherds. You're not shepherds. A shepherd is a called man of God who's a pastor elder who's calling, he's shepherding that flock of people as Christ is under shepherd. They're starting to use these terms in the business world. They're trying to now take, they're taking this idea of shepherding and saying, we're going to shepherd you at this multi-million dollar corporation. That's not shepherding. Because a shepherd's going to do much more than just tell you what to do. A shepherd is going to try to deal tenderly with you. He's going to try to deal with you. He's going to walk with you through times of trial and times of struggle. He's going to rejoice with you. He's going to shepherd. Just like we understand the relationship of parents. We're parenting, right? And we're doing that in love, but we also do it if we don't discipline our children, and we'll talk about this this morning in the, the main message, discipline is a sign of love. Show me a child that was undisciplined, and I will show, I will show you a child whose life right now is probably in shambles. And it truly almost always holds true to form. There's always the exception. But the greatest way we display the love for one another and the love for our children and even in the church is discipline. It's not meant to harm us. That's the difference. Discipline's not meant to harm you, even in the church. Church discipline is meant with the goal of restoration. So there's the assumption that that's what we'll see. And you can read Matthew 18 and Hebrews 13 about that specifically. And then as we read in Acts 14, verse 23, notice that the apostles themselves established the church and they also appointed elders. They were elders. They were people who were carrying out that work. So there is the confession, or the confession does declare based on Scripture that it is a command. Thirdly, this is kind of a, a repetitive statement, but I think it's good. The local church is composed of people who are truly saved and defined as genuine disciples of Christ. It's the desire of a true disciple to learn and then obey Christ's command. The local church exists Sure, to bring sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. But then that beautiful next step, that beautiful next step that we took last week when we stirred the baptismal waters back there. We watched two people follow in believers' baptism, absolutely nothing to do with adding to their salvation or saving them. It was an act of obedience and a public proclamation that we are in Christ Jesus. If baptism could save you, it would make it a work, and that would make your salvation a works-based salvation, which can never be. Our church categorically denies baptismal regeneration across the board. It's not happening. You're not being saved by baptism. That's a step of obedience. That's a step of a true disciple. I want to follow Christ. That's why we reject infant baptism. How can an infant 
follow Christ? And how can an infant even at that point have an acknowledgement that they're a sinner? And we dealt with elect children and elect, and that was a whole, whole study in and of itself. But understand that the church is composed of these people who are truly saved and defined as genuine disciples. The church exists, sinners to repentance and faith, baptizing them and then encouraging them in continued obedience to the teachings and commands of Jesus Christ. That's the blueprint for the local church. So if we saw the whole process play out, let's say today, and wouldn't this be glorious, today somebody walks in the front door, hears the gospel being preached, the Spirit of God attends the word that's being preached with power, converts that soul. That soul from today on acknowledges Jesus Christ has saved me. Immediately or maybe a couple weeks later or whatever the case is, they turn around and say, I want to follow my Lord in believer's baptism. We're like, praise the Lord. They follow the Lord in, in baptism. We fill the baptistry again and we baptize another one. And then they say, the Lord would have me to be a part of this local church. That's the beauty of this. That's the beauty of how it works. To see someone who comes from a a sinner who's lost in their sins, whose eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped to hear, they're made willing to believe, they're converted, and then they desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with the rest of their life. And that first thing they do is publicly identify. And the church that's there becomes a witness. It's a beautiful thing. We witnessed two people follow as a church. And if you didn't leave here edified, you're missing it. That baptism is a beautiful picture of, of a life of obedience and what Christ has done. And yet, here's the church that's carrying those things out. Fourthly, the confession also declares that true disciples will realize that Christ commands them to walk together in particular churches. Now again, I've already, I've already dealt with this, so I won't say a lot about this, but the influences of independence today are t- having a, taking a hold on the American church. There are things happening in the American church that they're not seeing in other parts of the world. The American church seems to be moving towards a more individual, catered experience. In other words, we want you to come and we want your individual needs met. Can I tell you when a church buys into that, that church is on the path to death. Because I could never, our church could never keep up with giving all the individual needs. If we came in and said, look, this church is about our individual needs. I can already tell you a church our size, we can't meet your need. There's no way we can do it all. But that's not the purpose of the church anyway. The purpose of the church is not to meet our individual needs, but to meet our needs collectively and corporately as we worship God truly in spirit and in truth. Some people say, well, I, this is the old cliched statement, I worship the Lord on a mountaintop. I worship the Lord at the beach. I worship the Lord uh, in, in the forest, whatever it is. I, I worship, my favorite when growing up was I worship the, the Lord on, when I'm there on Sunday, I worship the Lord in my fishing boat out in the middle of the lake. I understand what you're saying. I don't agree with it, but I understand what you're saying. You're, you're, but you're failing the command of assembly. You're failing the command of 
joining in that membership, joining a church, doing what you need to do. Think about how many of the letters that even Paul wrote were addressed to the church. They were written to the church. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, Philemon. We have these that are written to the church. The fact is, even in Paul's day, and I think Paul, if you study his life out in his writings about the church, if you didn't, according to his day, if you didn't gather with the local church, the Bible would assume that you're not a Christian at all. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and declares and asserts them to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of individual members. No, make no mistake about it, we're all individuals. Another teaching I grew up on that I have sat and gladly have had that blindness removed is that you can look out on a congregation of people and declare unto them what their spiritual gifts are and that everybody needs to be doing the exact same thing. And if you're not, there must be something wrong with your salvation. I preached that for a number of years. Well, I look at all of you today and I say, look, here's what, here's what we're doing today. And if you don't do this, you really need to get on your face before God and you need to repent. If you don't do this, because we're all doing this, look, every one of us, the spiritual gifts and the equipping of the body. That's why Paul was talking about the eye is not the ear. But when the body's functioning properly, everyone's edifying each other. Everybody's being edified, not just by what's coming from the pulpit, but what's actually coming from the congregation of people. I grew up in areas where everybody came and they just sat and looked at that preacher and said, now preacher, I want you to give me everything I need today. Folks, that's not, that's not what it's supposed to be. It shouldn't matter who's standing up here. If they open up this book and they preach the Bible to you, I don't care who they are, but that's the word of God going forth. Say, well, they're not, they're not college or seminary trained. I don't care. That doesn't matter. That's not what's declaring whether or not you're in the best church is because they have the most PhDs after their name. Give me a man who has, who has studied the Word of God for himself and has stood up and he's trusting in the Spirit of God to direct his, and direct that the power of, the, of his words is not his eloquence, but it's the Spirit of God. I'll take that preacher every time over the PhD guy. If that PhD guy's relying on his education, It's not the man, it's the power of God. Many professed Christians today, we simply need to repent of our commitment to being individualistic and commit to serving Christ in the context of a local church. Fifth point, the purpose of the local church is designed to edify, strengthen, and mature the believers in that congregation. Now, we go out on Facebook Live and then publish it on YouTube every single time that we're here. I'm glad that there are people who are on that are not part of our church. There are various reasons why. But in many of those cases, the design is not so much to edify and strengthen those who are outside of the church as much as it is those who are a part of the church. Now, if someone gets a blessing from it, praise the Lord for it. If somebody hears the word of God go forth on live stream, 
And the Lord uses that, converts their soul, praise the Lord for it. But my goal when we go live is not to edify and encourage and strengthen the world. You folks realize my heart is with the congregation here. That's my main responsibility, is to strengthen and edify and encourage you, to help you, to shepherd you, not the live streaming world. There are churches now that have two membership lists. They have a membership of those who live near enough that they attend regular services, and they now call them, but we now have our online membership list. And there are people from all over the world, and they take time during their services to go down all the new members who joined online. That's not being a church member. You're not under any authority. You're not under any discipline. You're not under any real commands of anything. All you have to do is log on at the appointed time, and I'm a member of a church. We're never going to have online members. If somebody writes me and emails me and says, we'd like to join your church, but we live in South Dakota, can we become a member of your church? No, you can't. The purpose is to strengthen each other. You know, before technology, ever go to local church. And this is why I'm, I think sometimes I'm this, I'm this old soul, and maybe that's good. I really long for the days when the technology wasn't driving everything. And I'm a technology guy. But it disturbs me in the church how it's become the thing. And that, what's, what's, what's your online presence? In the scope of our ministry, online presence is at the very bottom of my list. Like, I'm not going to get real creative with how we present it. I'm not going to get all these fancy graphics and try it. I'm going to hit live at 10 o'clock. I'm going to hit live at 11.30, 11.15. I'm going to hit live at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. And they're just going to hear the Word of God. Because that, that's the simplicity of it. The purpose is to edify. Each member exercises his or her spiritual gifts for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, Philippians 2. The Holy Spirit gives each of Christ's disciples certain desires and abilities that are designed by Him to contribute to the good of others. You hear me pray often that the Lord would knit our hearts together. We would be in one accord. Doing that is by discovering the needs of one another. We're moved by the needs of others. We're moved by the compassion we have for each other. We seek to minister to other people's needs. Some people say, I can't figure out my spiritual gift. You know, the best way to figure out your spiritual gift is to just say, how can I minister to the needs of somebody else? And start with your local congregation and see if your spiritual gifts don't reveal themselves. I don't have a survey for you to take that'll tell you what your spiritual gifts are. Ten points. Here you find your spiritual gift. It's kind of like the five love languages. How many have heard of that? And you find out your love languages sometime there. Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it actually changes. One, one part of your life, your, life, your love language was this, and then you get a little older and you say, my love language isn't the same as it was. Your spiritual gifts are not found through a survey or a poll. They're found as you minister to one another. Some of you are extremely good, and I'm talking about people in this room right now, you're extremely good at ministering to other people just with your words. Some of you don't even know how good you are at it. 
but you're ministering to people. You're edifying each other. The discovery of spiritual gifts is not made by self-reflection, but as Jesus himself said, denying self and seeking to serve others. It's only when we're willing to die to self in our service to Christ that we find out what our purpose is in the local church. The purpose of the church is not found in how many programs it has. Churches have always been people because that's what the church is. It's people. It's not a building. It's not a program. Next, the purpose of the local church is to correct is the correct form of public worship, which he requires of them in the world. Now, since we moved from chapter 18 to chapter 26, we haven't studied chapter 22, but if you'd like to, uh, sometime this week, turn back to chapter 22 of the confession and read about public worship and what God requires. There's a reference there that's called the regulative principle. That's what we operate on. It teaches that scripture must determine what we do in a corporate setting, especially in in God's presence or acts of corporate worship. It's not man-centered, it's God-centered. Psalm 115.1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for the truth, for the truth's sake. It is God's presence, it's God's name, it's God's word, and it's God's worship that is supposed to be the focal point of all of our worship, not how it makes us feel. Most people say we had a good worship service today because how it made us feel. Some of the grandest worship you're ever going to have is when you leave with a spirit of repentance. Where your heart is so overwhelmed with conviction that you have to go deal with that. We'll say, well, that's not worship. We want it to be, ra- we want it to be rousing and lively. Listen, some of the greatest worship is when you're brought to repentance. Because you've been in the presence of God. Today, many people gather together for many different reasons, but the disciples of Christ gather to perform correct public worship, which is prescribed by the Lord and required in the Scriptures. And then finally, let's just deal with this. The purpose of the local church is to preach the gospel. Now, I didn't put these in order of importance, like the gospel is not important. But I want you to understand that if we go out and we preach the gospel, and we say we're preaching the gospel, but we don't get the church right there's still a problem. If we're going to proclaim the gospel, then what the church is ought to reflect what the gospel is really all about. I saw recently, and some of you have seen this, and it's a, it's a, it's a church in Canada, but they've decided that the way to reach the world is to use uh, popular Broadway productions to present the gospel. So every Easter... They use a Broadway or a movie production and they replicate or use individual characters to say this is representative of Jesus over here. They've done The Lion King. This past Easter, they did Iron Man. Marvel, right? Guess who represented Jesus in their mockery and their blasphemous production? Actual Iron Man was Jesus and they actually had this man that was in the Iron Man costume with two beams of wood. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care what you say it is. You did not preach the gospel and you made a mockery of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You will never, ever see anything like that foolishness here. You'd have to run me out of here on a rail to ever see that. And I wouldn't be a part of it. We got to be more creative. No, we don't. You preach the gospel exactly as it is. 
You don't, have to, you don't have to sharpen it. You don't have to make it more beautiful. You just preach it as it is. So even our worship should preach the gospel. Our worship should preach the gospel. The church lives in a world that opposes the church, but it benefits from the church. You know, some of the greatest opponents of the church are some of the greatest beneficiaries of it. I don't need that church over there, but yet you've been receiving benefits for many, many years. Jesus Himself, and I know the context is a bit different, but I think it's very vital and important. Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light shine. The truth of the purpose of the local church. Next week, we're going to look at paragraph 6, which actually delves deeper into membership. So that's what the subject for next week will be if you want to read ahead paragraph 6, the membership of the local church. I encourage you to read through the passages that are footnoted. I don't always cover them all, but I try to get to them, but that'll be a great, you know, great uh, study for you uh, this week. Okay, well, let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed to our time of fellowship and prayer. Again, thank you for your patience this morning. I know I went long today and uh, I wanted to get all this in one uh, lesson this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. Father... We are so thankful to be able to be entrusted with the gospel and to be entrusted with your word. Although, Lord, it can be a frightening and a humbling thing to consider that we are held into account as to how we function as a local church, that the purposes of this church should be your purposes, not ours. Lord, the pressure is real to give in to what society wants the church to be, how it should be structured, how it should be formed. Lord, we see it happening all around us. Churches are becoming nothing more than an entertainment center. Father, the last thing that we need is more entertainment. The last thing that we need is more of what we want. May it be our heart's desire today, whatever local church we're a part of, and if it's this one, praise the Lord for that. But Father, may we glorify Christ and remember His calling. Remember that we were given by the gift of the Father to the Son. And without the effectual working power of the Spirit, we would still be undone, still declared unjust and unrighteous. But out of Your great mercy, through Your, Lord, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been saved. Father, may our minds remain stayed upon You. For it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you.